From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. On today's show, we first speak with Scott Weidensell, naturalist, author, and finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Living on the Wind, Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds. Weidensell joins the show to discuss the fall bird migration across the U.S. Last week, millions of birds were detected migrating south from Canada, primarily through the Midwest. Yet tens of thousands are killed each year during this migration due to human hands, many due to collisions with tall buildings. Scott Widensall in the first part of the show. Then Mitch Dumpke and McKinley Smoot of Three Springs Land and Livestock will come on the show to discuss regenerative farming via their chicken and cattle ranching operations. They'll discuss the six principles of soil health and why that drives many of their grazing decisions. That's right. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And uh, joining us for the first part of the show today is Scott Widensall. Um, he's a naturalist, author, and uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Living on the Wind Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds. Today we're going to be talking about bird migration. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to have to be back. Thanks for, for inviting me. Well, it is. It is always a pleasure to talk. And during this fall bird migration season, we thought it a good time to visit the topic of bird migration. And before we kind of dig into the nitty gritty here, you know, I think we all know that some species migrate, um, some species of birds migrate. But what is like, what is the scale of this migration? Where is it happening? Can you kind of give us like the big picture on bird migration? It is happening everywhere. That's the thing. I mean, I think most people don't really comprehend the scale of bird migration ac across North America every year. We're talking about billions of birds with a B. And in fact, on some nights in spring and fall migration, you may have as many as three quarters of a billion birds in flight over the lower 48 of the U.S. Um, at any given time. And we and we know those numbers. So those aren't those aren't necessarily really estimates. Those are pretty solid numbers based on our ability to use the Doppler weather radar system, which in addition to telling us whether there's snowstorms coming or a thunderstorm, can tell us with a remarkable degree of precision exactly how many birds per cubic meter of airspace are flying over those metropolitan areas where we have the Doppler radar. And you extrapolate that across the country, you get a really good idea of just how many birds are moving up there. And all of this is taking place after dark, most of it, because most birds migrate at night, even birds that are normally active in the daytime. The, the night sky is cooler, it's more humid, there are fewer predators, the air is less turbulent. So warblers and vireos and thrushes and, um, and other songbirds that are normally active in the daytime are doing most of their migration at night. So it happens out of sight of us, but, but thanks to technology, not out of mind of us. And in fact, anybody who's interested can go to birdcast.info, the BirdCast website, which is a collaboration of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, um, UMass Amherst, and Colorado State University. And you can see in real time exactly where and how many birds are migrating across the lower 48. It's, it's really an incredible window into, into the fall migration. Birdcast is an, is an incredible resource. And I think once you start looking a little bit addictive um, to understand just <laughs> what's happening over your head each night that you might not realize. Um, 
So some of these bird migrations are um, incredibly long and and some are relatively short, Um, but will you share some of the more maybe lengthy or um, impressive bird migrations with us and how the birds can withstand that? Yeah, it's incredible um, because, you know, we're talking here in many cases about some of the smallest birds. I mean, little black pole warblers. It's one of the species that I study with some friends of mine who work from the National Park Service in Alaska. And we've put tracking devices called geolocators on black pole warblers that breed in Denali National Park that fly west to east across all of North America and then take off from the northeastern coast of North America and fly like 3,000 miles out over the western Atlantic Ocean all the way to their wintering grounds in the Orinoco and Amazon basins in, in South America. I mean, these birds are like five and a half inches long. They weigh wow. less than half an ounce. And they're making this trip on, you know, a few grams of fat. I mean, I could, as much fat as I could fit on the back of my thumb. In fact, um, one, by one calculation, if they were burning gasoline instead of fat, they would get 720,000 miles to the gallon, <laughs> which is now that's some fuel efficiency. But, you know, at the other side of the of the, the world, heading in the opposite direction, also from Alaska, you have bar-tailed godwits, which are these, um, oh, roughly pigeon-sized shorebirds with very long skinny legs and a very long skinny bill that breed in western Alaska and then fly 8,100 miles nonstop across the widest part of the Pacific Ocean wow. all the way to their wintering grounds in New Zealand and on the coast of Australia. And they're able to do that in part because they more than double their weight before they take off. They, they just pork up with an incredible amount of fat. And then having gained all this weight, they no longer need their digestive system. So in a matter of less than a week, their stomach, their intestines, um, to a lesser extent, their liver and kidneys shrink dramatically while their, their chest muscles, their pectoral muscles that power their flight increase by 50% in mass, as does their heart muscle. And then they make this incredible flight across the Pacific. They land in New Zealand, they regrow their guts, and they spend the austral summer, our winter, feeding on um, marine invertebrates and tidal flats in, in New Zealand and Australia. And then come the end of the austral summer in March and April, they take off and fly the opposite direction up to the, the Yellow Sea between China and the Korean Peninsula, having undergone the same incredible body change of shrinking guts and expanding muscles, land, regrow their guts, eat for a couple of weeks, lay on a lot of fat, fly another 4,000 miles from there back to Alaska for the breeding season. So it's like 18,000 miles a year um, for a bird that will live 25 or 30 years. So that's like the distance from here to the moon and most of the way back by the time that bird finally dies. Wow. It's a it's a true wonder. <laughs> uh, I, yes. And I have to ask without sounding disrespectful to Godwitz, why do they have to fly 8,100 miles? <laughs> Isn't 4,000 enough? I mean, say, honestly. Well, 4,000 4, only takes them partway across the Pacific I know, Ocean, but can't they find swim. another um, land mass to go to? Uh, maybe, seriously, or maybe on, on an evolutionary scale, Godwits didn't first come, you know, on uh, evolve with saying, oh, you know what, it's time to fly 8,000 miles. This was done over periods of generations, I assume, mm-hmm. that Godwits first figured, well, we got to go south and we'll eventually, you know, we'll fly 8,000 miles. But is there any way of sensing how bird migration has changed over time on kind of an evolutionary scale? Yeah, in fact, we can actually see it happening huh. right now. Um, one of the groups of birds that I study are hummingbirds. 
And what we've been seeing in the last, oh, 40 or 50 years or so is the evolution of new migratory routes and new wintering areas for a number of species of Western North American hummingbirds, particularly rufous hummingbirds, hmm. which breed you know, from the Northern Rockies and Cascades up through the Pacific Northwest into Alaska, and which traditionally winter in the mountains of Western and Central Mexico. But here's the thing about migration. For most birds, migration is not something that they learn. It's something that's baked into their DNA. They're hmm. born with a set of genetic instructions that send them in a certain direction at a certain time of the year, flying for a certain length of time. They don't, it's not a conscious decision. Mom and dad don't teach them where to go. And anytime you have something that's genetic, you can end up with a bird with bad software, basically. Right. And so an increasing number of these Western hummingbirds, probably for as long as there have been rufous hummingbirds, have been born with software, born with a, a genetic propensity. Instead of flying south, they go east. And I'm guessing that four or 500 years ago, when the climate was much colder and the landscape was much different, most of those birds died. They were pruned out of the gene pool. But the climate is much warmer and the landscape is very different. And particularly in places like the Southeastern United States, the Gulf Coast region, I mean, that's like the land of milk and honey for a hummingbird now. And so these rufous hummingbirds that were born with this, with this faulty migration orientation survive. They return to their breeding grounds. They pass those genes on to a next generation. And so there are now thousands to perhaps tens of thousands of hummingbirds of eight or nine, maybe 10, 11 species um, that now winter routinely in the east and southeast. I'm up here in New Hampshire, and we get rufous hummingbirds, broad-tailed hummingbirds, calliope hummingbirds, Allen's hummingbirds showing up in New England in late fall and early winter. Um, last year, I banded the first ever broad-tailed hummingbird ever discovered anywhere in New England. A couple of years before that, it was the first Anna's hummingbird. We're actually seeing a new migration route and a new wintering area evolve right before our eyes. Wow. And so uh, if hummingbirds are doing it, it's suggestive that other birds uh, may also be changing their migration patterns. Sure. Well, I mean, we've always had birds that show up in places where they're not supposed to be. Um, mm -hmm. Birders call them vagrants. And that's one of the most exciting things about birding is showing, finding a bird that does not belong where you have found it. But in a sense, that's also nature's way of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Anytime the environmental conditions start to change, those, those birds that are out of range may end up being the ones um, that are able to pioneer a new, a new place to live, a new migration route to follow. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a directed process. It's not like the birds are figuring this out and doing it intentionally. They're just going where their genes are telling them. Um, and most of the time, that's not a good place to be. But when conditions change, and of course conditions are changing rapidly now with climate change, um, and also all the habitat alteration that humans have wrought, um, that, that will produce, it may produce some winners where would, that would otherwise not have been the case. All right, so we've talked a little bit about these incredible migrations. These birds have been making these for many thousands of years. And of course, there are like natural, um, I guess, challenges or barriers or risks that they run into doing that. Um, but they've kind of evolved, I guess, to know how to deal with those things to survive. And now we humans are causing a whole sort of new level of impact and challenge for these birds. Um, so talk us through a little bit about, you know, how human impact would would change or impact a bird's migration. 
Right, because migration is already the most dangerous part of a bird's annual cycle. That's when the majority of the of the mortality occurs, because you've got storms and predation and exhaustion and you know all the natural hazards that you mentioned. But now on top of that, we've added so many um, so many new hazards. And I think if people have been paying attention in the last week or two, they've probably heard, as you indicated earlier. Um, there have been some really massive bird kills, window strike bird kills mm. in places like Chicago, where the McCormick Place um, skyscraper killed thousands of birds. Um, but this is something that happens everywhere, and that's because birds don't understand glass. Um, you know, in, in, and we use so much glass, particularly in urban environments. Much of that is lighted at night. These birds are migrating after dark, and particularly on nights when there's a little bit of moisture in the air, there's a little bit of cl low clouds or drizzle um, or, or a, bit of, a bit of fog or mist, um, birds can really become terribly disoriented around lighted skyscrapers. Um, they fly into them. They often get you know, pulled into cities. We, we know that, that migratory birds, especially young birds on their first migration in the fall, are kind of like moths to a flame. They're drawn into urban areas by the light pollution. And come daybreak, they're flying around trying to find a place to go, and they see what looks like a clear path to fly, and it's actually the reflection of a street-side tree on a window, and they slam into it, and they die. And I think we've only in the last 20 years really begun to understand the scale of the loss. And you know, we're at a time when we know that the populations of many migratory birds are in very, very steep decline. And this is one place where we can we can relatively easily make a difference. And so with uh, with some of the worst buildings, some of the, the, the worst bird killers, like the Javits Center in New York City, which had a, a reputation for being a real disaster every year, just thousands and thousands of birds killed at the Javits Center, they refitted those windows with, um, you know, with, the, with a variety of techniques that make the windows visible to birds. Um, you can use um, UV reflective dots, little fritting on the window glass. There's a lot of ways that, that architects can now design buildings that don't kill birds. And the Javits Center went from being one of the worst bird killers in New York City to being kind of an oasis for birds because they have a, a green roof um, that's now a major breeding ground for um, a big population of urban nesting herring gulls. So it's possible to make changes hmm. to turn your buildings around. And, and, and even simple things that we can do in during spring and fall migration, if you have outside lights, please turn them off. Even if you're not in, the, in an urban area, there's so much light pollution that is affecting these birds that evolved to, to navigate by starlight. And every little thing that we can do to help them along the way is important. We're speaking with Scott Widensaw. He's a naturalist and author of the book, Living on the Wind Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds. And we're talking about bird migration. And uh, um, Scott, we're, yeah, obviously we're focused on bird migration throughout the U.S., but I'm assuming that birds are migrating all around the world from north to south. Um, are there species... every other direction. Oh, yeah, east to west, west to east. Oh, they're bouncing. They're bouncing around like you know ping pongs on a ping pong ball table. Okay, that's, that's one of the things about. And I and I cut you off. I'm sorry. That, you were no. about to ask me a question, but um, well, my my question is: Are there species now that not only are maybe adjusting their migratory path, but maybe adjusting their their timing? They're leaving later, or um, maybe some that are not 
migrating at all or don't or find no need to migrate anymore all of the above okay. actually um like for example um many species of waterfowl like ducks and geese and swans um we've known for a long time they're they're very flexible in their migration and in many cases they're they're staying much farther north than they did in years past mm. they're migrating later in the season in fact, if you have a fairly mild winter and the, the ponds and lakes don't freeze, they may, they may not migrate very far south at all. We see this particularly with these large resident populations of Canada geese that have kind of exploded across much of North America. In other places, we're seeing that birds are coming back weeks earlier um, in the spring and staying later in the fall, which suggests a little bit of plasticity in the face of climate change. Although. We shouldn't get too comfortable with that notion because if you look a little bit more closely at that, it's mostly birds that winter um, within the United States. Like for example, we have uh, really good records from places like upstate New York where people have been keeping meticulous records for more than a hundred years when birds first return in the spring when they leave in the fall. And the birds that are showing up earlier and earlier and trying to keep track with the, with the ever advancing um, um, seasons are mostly birds like well, eastern towhees and brown thrashers and American robins and eastern phoebes that winter mostly in the U.S. that can tell whether it's an unusually late cold winter, in which case they may stay in the south a little bit longer, or an unusually early warm spring, in which case they may migrate north earlier. The birds that winter much further away, what we know, what we call neotropical migrants, um, warblers and vireos that winter in the Caribbean or Central or South America, those birds are mostly coming back on about the same timetable that they did 50 or 100 years ago. They're, they're coming back on average five or six days earlier than they did half a century ago. The problem is spring is coming weeks and weeks earlier. And so the danger for these birds is that they fall so far out of step with the seasons that the, the resources that they need, especially to raise their chicks, and we're talking here mostly about soft-bodied insects like caterpillars, which have a tendency to peak relatively early in summer. If the birds miss that peak, um, you'll end up with what's known as a phenological mismatch, where they won't have enough food available to feed their, their, their chicks. You know, a single songbird chick is probably gonna require a couple thousand caterpillars during the roughly two weeks that it's in the nest or dependent on its parents. That's a lot of insect food that the parents have to find. And if they miss that insect peak, um, they may be in trouble. Right, so it's one thing to have te temperatures that are, uh, are warm enough for them to, to uh, survive in, but it's another thing to have, well, like you say, a pantry of food uh, mm -hmm. and habitat too. They have to have um, plants that are hopefully leafing out so there's protection inside. There's a whole ecosystem that has to shift with that warming warming world that's exactly right and again because most of these birds are operating on genetically encoded instructions um you know if, if you're a black-throated blue warbler wintering in you know along the gulf of honduras you don't know whether it's an unusually cold late winter or an unusually early warm spring mm -hmm. on your breeding grounds up in southern canada um, so you're just you're just traveling based on what's what's baked into your dna and unfortunately, that means these birds are showing up in many cases later and later every year compared to the seasons.
Okay, so let's talk a little bit more. We touched on this a little bit, but um, let's talk a little bit more about what we can do to eliminate these barriers or challenges or risks that we're creating um, for these birds. One of those things you mentioned was turning off lights, particularly during migration season. Um, What else? Well, I mean, there's a couple of really simple things. If you have a cat, please, for the love of God, keep it in the house. (laughs) Yeah. as, as, as deadly as windows are for birds, the research suggests cats kill more birds in North America than any other human-related cause. Somewhere between four and, or excuse me, two and four billion with a B birds in the United States every year. Wow. And keeping your cats inside is better for the cats. It's better for the, the wildlife in general. Um, you know, they won't end up on the road. They won't get eaten by a coyote. They, you know, it's a whole, whole host of reasons. Um, also, if you're landscaping your property, um, would encourage you to use native plants because every time you plant a native species rather than some exotic from halfway around the world that you bought at the garden store, you're knitting together broken ecological connections. Um, the insects that feed on those plants, don't think of them as pests, think of them as insect, as, as bird food. Um, you know, that's, um, if we, if every person, um, every homeowner, every property owner in the United States planted one native berry producing shrub in their backyard. We could create literally millions of acres of habitat for birds. And particularly at this time of the year in the fall migration, a lot of our migrants that normally feed on insects are shifting over to native um, nutrient rich fruits, um, native dogwoods, native viburnums that, you know, these, their fruit are very high in fat and we're talking here about like many of the many of our thrushes, for example, great cheek thrushes, Swainson's thrushes, hermit thrushes. They really depend on fruit. And that's what's going to carry them to their wintering grounds in the tropics. And so, planting native plants, keeping your cats inside. Um, if you've got a window windows around your house and you find birds that have thumped into those windows, um, consider getting um, you know window treatments you can put on the outside. We did this here in our house in in um, New Hampshire. We have a sliding glass door. And it's the only, all the other windows in the house have screens on the outside, but that sliding glass door was killing birds every year. And so we got um, you know, a, a, a kind of window treatment. It's little tiny, um, oh, they're like an eighth of an inch square dots that are UV reflective because birds can see in the ultraviolet range. Yeah. They go on um, in, a, in a grid pattern with, with a tape. Uh, it's really easy to put on. Haven't had a single bird strike on, those, on that sliding door since we put those up simple and i can see through it just fine it doesn't interfere with the view out in the backyard at all right and and that's a problem that's year-round right scott that's not just a migratory period so you're actually benefiting birds year-round by doing that absolutely absolutely and same thing with keeping your cats indoors year-round that's not just a migratory pattern time of year uh, how, how, yeah, because, go because ahead. We're, you know, yeah. during migration season, you know, in a sense, your backyard is becoming um, a refuge for birds from very far away birds. It may be coming from the boreal forests of Canada, passing down through Utah on their way to their wintering grounds in the highlands of Mexico. In a sense, you're kind of holding in trust those birds that are passing through for everybody else along their their migration route that that that, that love those birds and look forward to seeing them and, and hope they come back. So for uh, listeners who are interested in digging in a little bit deeper to this world of birds and bird migration, um, what resources would you direct them to? 
Well, one of the best places that folks can go is the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University in New York. Allaboutbirds.org is their website. Virtually anything you can think to ask about birds, you can probably find answers to on Cornell's website. Um, it's just one of the best all-around websites. Um, also, if you're a birder and you're not an eBirder, um, uh, eBird is the largest wildlife um, observational database in the world, also run through the Cornell Lab. Um, hundreds of millions of sightings added every year, and it shows you where the birds are when. You can go on the eBird website and explore that. Um, if you've got uh, local places that you're interested in going birding, if you're going out to Bear River, for example, you can go on eBird and find you know find out who's been posting what sightings out there. It's a really tremendous resource for uh, for anybody interested in birds. So you mentioned one of our local birding hotspots, yeah, the uh -huh. uh, the Bear River area. Well done. Um, are you familiar with birding in Utah? <laughs> we have to ask. Well, I, I, I am. It's been a while since I've been out to Great Salt Lake, but I actually was birding in Utah in uh, in August. My wife and I were, um, I was invited to give a talk um, at Sundance, and we had a couple of days to do some some hiking and some birding out there, which was a ton of fun because, you know, I'm an East Coast birder, so even the most common um, Utah birds are, are a real treat for me. And so it was, it was terrific to, you know, be watching, oh, you know, broad-tailed hummingbirds rather than our local ruby throats and... Um, uh, yeah, it was it was it was just it was a ton of fun. Um, really, really enjoyed it. I don't get back to Utah nearly often enough. <laughs> well, we do but. have some great birding, both in the mountains and as you mentioned, down at the lake. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, Scott Weidensall, naturalist, author of the book Living on the Wind Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds. Again, that uh, website, uh, birdcast.info, I-N-F-O, correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Scott. And next time when you're in Utah, make sure you check in here with us. We'll have <laughs> you right. uh, in the studio. We'll, we'll go birding. That would, be a lot of, that, would, that would be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for the invitation. I uh, really enjoyed it. Pleasure thank you ours. for coming. Thanks, Scott. Let's take a break for a couple of underwriters. And when we come back, we'll be uh, talking uh, regenerative farming and grazing with Mitch Dumpke and McKinley Smoot of Three Springs Land and Livestock. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us for the second part of the show is Mitch Dumkey and McKinley Smoot, uh, owners and proprietors, I suppose, of Three Springs Land and Livestock. And that's down in the uh, Pioa area. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. Okay, well, give us a quick uh, high fly on what Three Springs Land and Livestock is all about and uh, when you started. We started about three years ago. Um, Three Springs Land and Livestock was kind of created through passion uh, about um, our environment, really. Um, and But it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit the opposite of what, you know, the classic 1960s conservation movement was about. Uh, we actually utilize livestock to recreate ecosystems, which uh, right now in the entire United States, we really don't have the, the management of livestock or the numbers of livestock to really recreate what was going on in this, on this incredible continent and across all grasslands uh, on the planet. And so, um, so basically we raise pasture raised beef and also pasture-raised poultry. And uh, we use holistic management, which was kind of 
pioneered or created by a guy named Alan Savory, who was a game manager in Africa and noticed how um, when he got rid of about 40,000 elephants that the environment began to deteriorate even more because they thought wildlife were destroying grasslands. And so uh, that's kind of the, the very broad overview of it. So, and, okay. Oh, I just want to jump in and ask, you know, how did your partnership come to be and how did this this partnership get started three years it's ago? It's a great love story, really. Um, <laughs> I love the planet. Um, but we, so I, uh, I was in tech for about 10 years, um, constantly trying to figure out ways to be connected to social issues while also doing the tech thing. And um, finally, just one of my movements to be an environmentalist was uh, to be an ecotarian and really not eat a lot of meat because of the way I was raised. Um, and so as I was doing that, my longtime best friend and he offered me some of his meat. I said, no, I'm saving the planet. He said, well, you can actually eat meat that's good for the planet. And I just didn't believe him. <laughs> he sent me a video. I sent him a video, his video won. Just for record, it's the TED Talk by Alan Savory. It's a good introduction to desertification. But um, uh, meanwhile, my, the same, our third partner, James, was looking at homes in the Heber Valley. McKinley is a realtor for ranch and, uh, ranches and rural land. And so he was showing James's house, happened to mention Alan Savory, and it felt like divine intervention for those two. James called me afterwards and he's like, dude, I just met this guy who knows, who's trained in the Savory Institute. And we just kind of kept talking. And I'd say about six to nine months later, we bought our first three cows. We looked at each other and we said, okay, now what? <laughs> because it's going to take two years for these, this thing to get to beef. And so we decided to buy chickens to kind of be a cash flow business entity for us. And that's really been our primary meat product for the last two years is our chickens. Um, our first beef is getting picked up this week. Um, and uh, it's been an amazing two-year ride of, you know, we're, we're filed as an L3C, a low-profit LLC. The idea is that we have a social purpose in addition to revenue, and so we really focus on soil health but also education, and so we do a lot of workshops, outreach. People are welcome to come on, see how the proverbial sausage is made. <laughs> so I'm actually, with, with you, uh, Mitch, I'm not a meat eater. Maybe once, but no beef, just chicken yeah, or I, turkey. And I am now. So I, I'm a carnivore I'm, now. I'll be honest. I'm going to be somewhat of your you know, most loyal opposition here Good. with respect to cattle. <laughs> yeah. But so let's, so let's start with chicken grazing. How does chicken, how does your process work with respect to chickens and how do they benefit the land? Yeah. So um, just to pull back on the, the idea of, Chicken generally, it's our most consumed protein in the United States. We eat about 60 uh, billion pounds of chicken meat a year. That translates to roughly about 9 billion chickens, primarily factory farmed in large structures. You've, there's, you know, I want to be respectful to some. There are some factory farms that, that try to do the right thing and are trying to be more humane with the treatment of the animals in their life. but. You know, predominantly they're in a very confined space. They're very limited to outdoor exposure. And so what pastured poultry is, is about the, the, the loose term of pastured poultry is that half of their life at least is spent on pasture. Half is important because industrial chicken is raised for six weeks and then killed. Our chickens take a little longer, at least usually eight to nine weeks. Their first three weeks of life are in a brooder so they can be healthy, be in 
get their outside feathers, get, get a little more weight on them. And then they go to pasture for five weeks, six weeks. So that means that about half of their diet while they're on pasture is grazing, foraging for bugs, worms, clover, grasses, whatever in there. So it is important that they're on the type of land that would provide more diverse nutrients for them as well. Um, and what these birds are doing for the land is they're doing that scratching behavior. If you've ever seen a chicken, you know, they love to scratch. They're disturbed, doing this slight disturbance to the land. They break up, you know, a thatched layer of grasses. Um, but another thing they do is they put out a ton of manure. <laughs> and so we have to move a structure every single day. They're in a mobile, they're in a mobile enclosure. So they can't just rain, roam wherever they want. Right. Too much predation in the Camas Valley in a lot of places. I, every one of our neighbors, I'd say, has a dog. <laughs> yeah. And we almost know all the dogs by name. Um, <laughs> uh, we don't know the skunks by name. We try to keep those out. Yeah, what are their, real quick, what are their natural predators? It's dogs aside. Yeah, our birds coyotes. have been killed primarily by skunks and coyotes. Or sorry, skunks, skunk, skunks and raccoons. Huh. We have seen fox and we have, you know, heard of coyotes around the area, but we haven't experienced predation from those two. We have had hawks. Uh, yeah, yeah, hawk, we, we did have some hawk. Okay, this so, year, so, right, that's it's a real deal. There's, yeah, it's yeah. a challenge raising these chickens in a natural setting. That's right. Um, uh, and that's okay. So go back. They're in an enclosed area, and that yeah. enclosed area gets moved around. We drag it with our truck every single day because if you move it, if you, you that is a management intensive more than any other livestock, in my opinion. Like you can leave cows on a pasture for an extra day and you'll be okay. We can't with the chickens. We got to move them every day because it looks like a mat manure. You're kind of like you don't want to step in it. But three right. weeks later, it is dark green. It is lush. It is healed, and it's got all that nutrient cycling in it, that nitrogen. Um, and so that, that's, I probably want a little more detail than, but that's, that's pastured poultry. The, the high thing there is, you know, as we're in the markets and we're selling this meat, the most important thing to our customers is they really do want to support local. That's a big deal here. We sell at the Park City Farmer's Market. And then I'd say, you know, additionally to that is uh, the nutrient density of this chicken is from other studies has proven to be higher nutrient density um, and also just has a deeper, richer flavor profile because of that diverse diet. The, we wanna get our own data, and so we're working to take our chicken to USU and do a deep analysis of its nutrient density, not just a fatty acid profile, but actually um, phytonutrients with Stefan Van Vliet, and it's, you know, it costs us about $300, $350 per bird to do this analysis, but we're gonna compare three birds from a grocery store, three birds from our diet where they're purely on a corn-free, soy-free diet, and then three birds where they're on a corn and soy diet, mm -hmm. just to really understand the landscape of that, those birds. This is gonna take us on a little bit of a tangent, but I think for years there's been interest in this community in local sources of meat. And there have been a number of challenges that people have faced that you know the producers have faced. Um, how how do you like what are the steps to get this from you know like raising these chickens to being able to sell those at a market to the community so specifically with poultry especially in the state of utah <clears throat> um utah is not really an ag state i know that's people are surprised by that when i say that <laughs> i don't um, know i don't know what like usu extension is going to think if they yeah well <laughs> Compare us to Idaho, Washington, sure. Oregon. Uh, there, I think there's like Arizona and New Mexico are yeah. similar to us, but 
Colorado blows us out of the water. Nevada is a little just because it's more desertified than we are. We just don't produce a lot of food. Um, yeah. Real, realistically, we we produce really high quality grass, really high quality alfalfa because of our um, altitude. But with the poultry, we've had to literally recreate the infrastructure that exists in the Midwest. Um, so, infrastructure for production agriculture that people eat is almost it's very difficult to find and very difficult to create and it's been a very serious uphill battle for us um, there's no USDA inspected kill facilities for poultry aside from the private ones for uh, Norbest or Mary's chicken down in San Pete County which isn't chicken it's, it, it's it's turkey there so okay Mary's chicken you've heard of the Pittman family out of North California it's kind of a more infamous organic type chicken they bought the turkey farm in 2018 so they still raise turkey down there but there's no there's no production chicken beyond what we and a handful of other chick poultry producers are 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 producing sorry no you're fine so uh recreating that infrastructure has really been difficult we've had to process our own chickens which is uh difficult um we haven't received a ton of support um from you know government entities there's a little bit of resistance to it because regulation they probably need to hire more people etc and so um but when it comes to to beef cattle it's a little bit more accessible um that's beef and sheep are the historically raised animals up here because utah is a cold state uh it's difficult to raise chickens we only can do it for five months of the year where beef and sheep are it's a different you know they can withstand winters they're they're a t- lot more hardy a lot less difficult to raise um in that regard yeah i was curious is there a a closed season for chicken raising you have to kind of you know haul operations or uh, based on winter conditions yes yeah, so unless you're gonna spend a lot of money on natural gas and build a big facility to raise them inside which we have no interest in doing mm. um I personally don't eat chicken unless I know who it came from. I, that's one of the animals I, I won't eat industrially that comes mm. from the grocery store. Right. Um, unless you build a huge facility like that and burn a lot of natural gas, you're only five months of the year. Well, in, in Camas Valley, for right. sure, maybe six or seven if you're in Salt Lake City, or Salt Lake Valley, Salt mm. Lake County. Unfortunately, the places where you could do most of this um, across the state are no longer really available to do this. So that would be basically from Payson all the way up to, to Willard, uh, okay. was that, that was our good ag ground and it's non-existent anymore, unfortunately. Well, I, I, one more chicken question, then, then we'll, we'll turn to cattle, uh, water, water is precious. Yep. Um, do chicken have a high water demand? So cumulatively over the life of a chicken, though, a meat chicken, they'll eat, you know, roughly 10 to 12 pounds of feed in yeah. their life. Uh. And then they, for every pound of feed they eat, they consume 2x that in water weight. Mm. So they, you know, a, a chicken will have about 24 pounds or 30 pounds of ch- water in their life. Oh, sorry, gallons, not yeah. pounds. Yeah, yeah. Converts to gallons. So, yeah, call it, you know, at large 30 gallons. We ran a water meter on our water. So we run a culinary line down our whole, seven, it's an 800-foot culinary line down the middle of our pasture with connections every hundred feet you're feeding them drinking water yes they don't have a strong gut system and so you actually wow so you do want to yeah we give them probiotic apple cider vinegar um vitamins and supplements that go into their feed as well as into a water supplement of apple cider vinegar to keep their gut stronger 
Um, and so, uh, uh, so anyway, the, the, the point of that water line is we have a meter on it and we read, we just read the meter and mm. we ran just over 60,000 gallons yeah. for the whole season. So yeah, 60 is about 63,000 gallons of water, which is, for a thousand uh, yeah, it's, what is that? A sixth yeah. of an acre foot for yeah. 1200 birds. So, so water consumption, in my opinion, is if it's just for stock water, it's very low. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're speaking with Mitch Dumkey and McKinley Smoot of Three Springs Land and Livestock down in uh, uh, the Piowa area. Um, okay, we, we, we talked about chickens. Now let's get to cattle. Uh, give us a sense of what, how your operations uh raising cattle the pr the production operations productions management of cattle is different than say i don't know dare i say 95 percent of cattle uh grazing and raising operations around the country yeah so i want to be careful with that because um, most of the finished cattle are finished in feedlots and that's usually where people start thinking about negative impacts of yeah. cattle now um the guys who raise those calves, management varies dramatically um, across the entire United States. Um, a lot of people do different varying degrees of uh, rotational grazing. I'm always hesitant to say rotational grazing is, is, is good. There's levels to that. Um, so basically the whole concept of what we do, we use holistic management and planned, holistic planned grazing, which optimizes recovery of plants. When cattle are, bit, are negative on natural landscapes or any animal for that fact, it's not just cattle, it's elk, bison, sheep, whatever it is. Um, if they are not managed, kept off a piece of ground for an adequate amount of time, they damage native grass populations or just grass populations in general, might turn it weedy, et cetera. Just imagine a horse pasture that's never, the horse is always on that pasture, turns into a dust bowl. Um, that's a that's kind of the classic as towns for, turn from ag to recreational kind of that middle part is it turns into horses um, and that's kind of where uh, Canvas Valley is at to some degree and so um, essentially it's keeping those animals moving and the the concept is that predator prey relationship especially pack hunting predators uh, being wolves coyotes whatever uh, you know, a long time ago, it used to be American lion, American cheetahs, stuff like that, would keep these animals in herds for protection, and that forced those animals to dung and urinate more densely, and so no animal wants to be near its own fecal matter right. for any period of time. And so that animal then moves off because they can't be near it, and then occasionally you have attacks, and they move even further, and then they do not return until, you know, Back in the day, it was it depended on where you're at. If you're if you were in Iowa, Illinois, those animals might might not come back for 60 days. If you're out here, depending on your rangeland, it might not be for two years. It might not be for three years. It might be for one year. So it totally depends on the brittleness of your environment. Um, out here, we're pretty brittle. Uh, not necessarily in Camas or Park City, but as soon as you get to the Wasatch Front, it gets brittle really really quickly. And so um, keeping that in mind, that's how we manage. Is we're trying to create those patterns of adequate recovery um, because without those large animals, I mean, everyone knows that bison are keystone species for the prairie. 
what's the difference between a bison and a cow? Well, bison are a little bit larger. They like to wallow a little bit, but they have very similar rumens and they graze the exact same way. They have a dental pad, they have a tongue that grabs a piece of grass, pins it to the top of their mouth and they rip it off. And so cattle can be the same as bison. And so it's just utilizing them to do that in the right way. It's all management. I mean, cattle can be horrible, bison can be horrible. It's, it's us, it's us who manage them. Yeah, I was gonna say humans can be horrible too. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like density is, is, is a word that seems to be critical here in the, density in the and management of and it. time, numbers and time. Okay, so talk about so, what your density is and time. So right now our focus is our, our time is, right now in this season with where we're at in our management, we have our cattle on for every two to three days in a certain pasture. But throughout the high growing season, we have electric fences that we use to create tight perimeters so that essentially at the end, they're never taking more than half. Maybe maybe they take two thirds or something, mm -hmm. but that there's always a plenty of coverage still on the ground to both protect the soil surface and then also to allow for um, living roots for water retention when there's rain events for nutrient cycling for the soil. So, um, so anyway, it looks like daily management. So we, we're, we're using, a, we actually have this calculator um, that we measure our forage every day. We place it 30 times throughout our pasture that we're about to graze. And it tells us the average um, pounds of forage available per acre. And we calculate the needs of our cattle, mm -hmm. how much, you know, either two and a half to three and a half percent, depending if it's a nursing cow or whatever. And we calculate that times the number of cows we have, that equals the amount of forage we need. Then we create that size of a paddock generally. A pa paddock is like a mini pasture, a smaller area. Um, and when they're in there every day. And then we show up the next day, they start yelling at us if we haven't moved them yet. And we open up the fence, they go to the next pasture and that creates a herd impact and herd effect where, you know, if you've ever um, seen soil that's called like capping where it's almost like hard on top mm -hmm. all of a sudden you get you get a herd of cattle coming through there they can break that cap and it actually allows for a seed bank underneath there and for when moisture comes back for more grasses to return and the, anyway so there's there's herd impact there's high density of manure but then move them off that's to mckinley's point give it the recovery time it needs to to be able to come back one of the um, principles that you list for your your range management um, is diversity, diversity of species. Will you talk a little bit about how you work with that? Yeah. Um, so we, uh, I always just laugh. When we ha we'll have some different scientists and consultants out. We had um, Rose with the Sage. Oh, Sageland Collaborative. Sageland Collaborative and, and some other individuals. And it was just a nerd fest out there. And I don't, we don't appreciate the landscape we work on every day, honestly. I, I, we're really so blessed and fortunate. We have landowners that give us a very generous lease. Um, but as we walk out there, there are three to four different birds of prey at any given point in time. We'll see bald eagle, sharp-shinned hawk, red-tailed hawk. Um, we are seeing a diversity of um, you know, smaller insects. We found this patch of poison ivy uh, well, we were actually observing this area where the previous year we had eight foot tall thistle and we were showing someone that and we, it was uh, someone from the NRCS and then we looked over and we had this poison ivy patch that we didn't, or was it stinging nettle? 
It was one of the two. It was one of the two. You don't want to touch it. And in a traditional area, you would have sprayed that with herbicide. You don't want that. Then the cattle aren't going to eat it. Well, we left it, and it became this insane web of uh, caterpillar um, webbing, silk. And it was just covered everywhere. And then our CS specialist, Corey, identified it. And he said, you know, this hasn't been documented here in, in 10 years in this general area. It's not like it's, we're bringing back extinct species. But the point is, is that diversity requires diversity. So if you have a monocrop of plants that only grow in certain seasons and are likely overgrazed, you don't have other plants there for other animals and insects and, and, and life that depend on that to be able to do their thing. And so we leave enough grass that the sandhill cranes can continue to nest there even when we're grazing through it and we give them space. We, um, you know, we, we identify uh, indications of, of beaver coming back or, you know, um, small toads or uh, not a toad, a frog. Uh, horse for frogs. Yeah, frogs. And so anyway, that, that's what kind of diversity looks like for us is more plant species coming back as well as wildlife. Yeah. It's... It's interesting in contrast, again, with some of the bigger operations where we see and hear the horror stories about sort of like these monocultures and this, it kind of trying to eliminate everything else to put every bit of the resource toward, mm -hmm. you know, the crop or the animal. Um, but there are obviously benefits to having this diversity yeah. as well. And, you know, McKinley's more certified in this than I can re regarding the soil science, but with the diversity we don't see that's almost the most important is the diversity in our soil. How are we bringing back a more fungal species into our system that are so critical to carbon sequestration? How are we bringing back, you know, the nematodes and protozoa and all these other microorganisms that are in, in such abundance that we, we can't even see? That's just as critical because that's what creates the nutrients to the plants, to the meat. And so, so nutrients is, is such a key component as it relates to creating diversity in our in our fields so well our our segment has kind of flown by here and we have like a you know minute or two left but um i i wanted to take the opportunity to ask how can people get engaged learn about your programs and workshops um where do you direct them so you can go to our website threespringsutah.com or you can follow us on instagram which is just at threespringsutah and that's the number three we also I have ha to say you share a lot of your, your trials and tribulations uh, on that that are fun to watch. Yeah, we had a rough year this year <laughs> with the poultry. Um, but uh, then, you, you know, we do have field days we, that we want people to come out and see what we're doing. Uh, we find that to probably be our most satisfying thing that we do is having people come out and see it because seeing cattle operate this way, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's something very natural to it. Um, it's very human. And unfortunately, we don't all get to do that every day. And we're, we're yeah. very fortunate we yeah. get to do that. So our beef is going to be coming online here this week. We'll start listing how it's available. It's the first cow we've ever processed. It was a, it was a big one. And, uh, and so we have that beef. We have chicken as well available for the season. We usually sell out early December. And so we encourage people to stock up and put in their order. And um, if they want to come pick it up at the ranch, they can come do that. Fantastic. All right, Mitch Dumpke and McKinley Smoot of Three Springs Land and Livestock. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you and so much. And we'll check Thanks. the website for the next uh, kind of field trip that people can uh, come out and visit you. Yep, we'll do a little snowshoe event or something, get okay. you out there in the, in the wintertime. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right.
I prefer I prefer warmer climbs when there's actually grass <laughs> and and poison we'll ivy and stinging nettle out there. We'll yeah, that. that's, that's much better. All right, thanks so much for joining us this morning.